the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today on Cornerstone Connection with Pastor Gary Hamrick. This is an important aspect that every Christian needs to understand. There is a call to holiness that God expects of us. And we need to take a sober, honest look at our lives and assess those things in our lives that are sinful and offensive to God, whether they be of the body and of the spirit, and never be content just to allow some of those things to be there. Paul encouraged the believers reading his letter to live a life set apart for God. His call was for the Corinthians to purify themselves from all sin that contaminates, hidden and visible. Not out of obligation, but out of reverence and desire to worship and glorify the God who's given His Son. Pastor Gary will challenge you to take a close look at your life to see what is sinful and offensive to God. What needs to be eliminated in order for you to grow in holiness? Never be content with a little bit of sin. Deal with the sin in your life because you are set apart to be God's ambassador. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of 2 Corinthians chapters 7 and 8 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Second Corinthians chapter 7, the first verse of chapter 7, and then I got to backpedal a little bit because he makes a contextual statement here. So 2 Corinthians 7, 1, he says, since we have these promises, dear friends, let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. All right, so you'll notice he begins this chapter by saying, since we have these Promises. So he's building on chapter 6. So again, we need to refresh ourselves from chapter 6. The end of chapter 6 had to do with this whole section about not being unequally yoked with non-believers. And we talked about this extensively last week. I'm not going to rehash the whole thing. Suffice it to say that Paul is not saying that as Christians we should be 
so exclusive that we don't associate with non-believers, that somehow it's wrong to work with non-believers or to hire non-believers. You know, don't avoid non-believers because he told us uh, back in chapter 5, we're to be ambassadors for Christ. You have to have interaction with people who don't know Christ in order for them to hopefully come to know Christ through you as a vessel that Christ would use as his ambassador. But the caution from the end of chapter 6 is, but don't yoke yourselves. And that whole agrarian concept of oxen being yoked together. So don't join in unions, partnerships, or bonds with someone who's not a believer because you, you are on a different world than they are. Your perspective is different. Your outlook is different. Your standards are different. Because hopefully as a Christian, you're living out your life according to the standard of God's word. People who aren't Christians aren't. And so you're coming at life from two totally different angles. So there's no real compatibility. And so therefore, understand the limit that we need to be influencers of non-believers. But we are not to harness ourselves and be yoked together with them in partnerships, unions, or bonds. Because it's incompatible. And you'll just have friction and conflict And it'll be hard. It'll be difficult. Now, at the end of saying all that of chapter 6, Paul then says, so therefore, be separate in the sense of like, don't allow the ungodliness of this world to be of a greater influence on you than you are on it. And that if in that sense, then you will separate yourself from the ungodliness of this world with the purpose of being an influencer of the world. Then he adds at the end of chapter 6, notice again there just at the end of chapter 6, verse 17, where he says this. He says, therefore come out from them and be separate, touch no unclean thing, and I will receive you. And then he says, verse 18, I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And then chapter 7, since we have these promises. All right, so that's the context. He's saying... When we live a life that is more interested and more concerned and our objective is more about influencing the world than allowing the ungodliness of the world to influence us, not harnessing ourselves in unions, partnerships, or bonds with ungodliness, okay? If you then live a life of separateness, distinctness unto the Lord in an ungodly world, then God makes this promise. He says, I'm going to be close to you like a father. I'm going to love you. You will be my sons, you'll be my daughters. And God makes this promise of this wonderful, close relationship that he's going to have with us. That's what Paul's building on. He says, now, since we have these promises, that God is our father and he loves us like sons and daughters, then he adds here, so let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Now, please note, perfecting holiness does not mean that we become perfect. We should have no illusions about that, all right? But he says perfecting holiness in the sense of bringing holiness to its ultimate completion. When you get saved, when you receive Christ as your Savior, you become holy, but then there is a life of holiness that you are to live. Holy in the sense of being separate as unto the Lord. Holiness in the Bible just simply means to be separated as belonging unto God. Now, he then calls us to live a life like that, a life of belonging to God. Walk out your holiness. Live a life of holiness because it produces a worship unto the Lord. He says, do this out of reverence for God. This is very similar to what Paul said back in Romans 12 in his letter to the Romans. In Romans 12, 1, when he says, 
Let us offer our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing unto the Lord, which is our reasonable act of what? Service, some translations say, or worship, other translations say. In other words, when we live a life of holiness, it's living a life of worship unto the Lord. God is pleased by it. He's blessed by it. He's worshiped by it. So Paul says here in chapter 7, because we have these promises where God is going to be a father to us and he loves us like sons and daughters, if you really want to respect your father in heaven and show him reverence and worship, then live a life perfecting holiness, purify yourselves, he says there, from everything that contaminates body and spirit. Now, there are some sins of the flesh, sins of the body, and there's some sins of the spirit. What do I mean? Some sins of the flesh are more obvious. There are some things in our flesh that we do that are noticeable and people can see it. And sometimes those are actually easier sins to deal with than the sins of the spirit. What kinds of sins of the spirit? Things that are unseen, like unforgiveness. Now, unforgiveness can manifest itself and be seen, but that hardening of your heart and not forgiving someone, unforgiveness, bitterness, pride. Those things are things of the heart. Those are things of the spirit people can't necessarily see. You can walk around all day long guarding physical kinds of fleshly sinful things and all the while in your heart harbor bitterness, unforgiveness, and pride. And people can look at, at you and think you're much more spiritual than someone else who does things physically sinfully because it's more visible. But let me just say to you, we are not any more godly because we have hidden sins versus visible sins. So he's calling us to purify our lives, body and spirit, the things of the flesh and the things of the spirit, attitudes, dispositions of the heart, as well as living out our lives in a way that would make sure we're careful about sins of the flesh as well. So he calls us here to consecration, to holiness, purifying ourselves from those things that contaminate body and spirit. I don't want to move on too quickly from this because this is an important aspect that every Christian needs to understand. There is a call to holiness that God expects of us. And we need to take a sober, honest look at our lives and assess those things in our lives that are sinful and offensive to God, whether they be of the body and of the spirit, and never be content just to allow some of those things to be there. All right, let me illustrate it to you like this. So I love orange juice, all right? Orange juice is, I mean, it's good for you. It's got some sugar content in it. It's like 26 grams of sugar in orange juice per cup. But nevertheless, I love orange juice. In the morning, isn't a nice drink of orange juice wonderful first thing in the morning? I love orange juice. How many love orange juice? All right, it's good for you. Orange juice is good for you. This is the good life right here, orange juice. Now, there's something else I like, not quite as good for me. It's Coke. Coke is not as good for me. (laughs) But I like Coke. The kind you drink, by the way, for those listening to the... (laughs) For those of you listening to the audio podcast, I'm talking about the kind you drink. (sighs) That's good stuff right there. It's not as good for me, but it is fun. 
It's fun. It's delicious. Now, here's what happens, though. See, some, some of you, you know, you're living a life that's kind of mixed. And you're like, man, I, I love Jesus. Mm. I love to smoke pot. Mm. <laughs> this is the way some of you live. Some of you are like, man, I'm going to get into the Word of God today. I love my devotional life. Mm, it is so wonderful. Mm. I'm going to sleep with my girlfriend today. Mm, mm. That is wonderful. Some of you are like, man, I love to come to church and worship God. Oh, I just love to worship. <laughs> man, I love to gossip too. Mm, mm. And so here's what some of you are thinking. Some of you think, you know, I just love to, I love to live this way for the Lord. But, you know, it's just, it's just a little bit. It's just a little bit of sin, you know, in my life. It's just, you know, I'm still, I'm still like 80% living for the Lord. That's nasty, but some of you are okay with this. You're like, I don't mind, I'm, I don't mind living a nasty life. You should care. This is nasty. Don't live like this. God doesn't want you to live like this. Don't be content to just kind of pollute your life. This is the kind of thing that Paul's saying. Now, I'm going to probably burp through the rest of the teaching. <laughs> But this is the kind of thing that Paul is saying. He says, listen, don't be content to live this duplicitous life where you you got a little bit of sin going on, but it's no big deal. He says, out of reverence for God, he says, purify yourself. Live a life of consecration unto the Lord, because in doing this, you're perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. And it becomes an expression of worship to the Lord. When you and I deal with that other stuff, that sometimes we allow just to be there in our lives, get rid of it. Deal with it. Now, it will be a constant mission, to be honest with you. To the day you die, it's going to be a constant thing that you and I will have to give attention to because the flesh will never rest. The flesh will never rest. Your flesh always wants to rule you. Your flesh is what is more natural to you and me. It feels more natural just to fall into gossip, slander, sexual sin, compromise, jealousy, anger. Those are things that are more natural to our flesh. Then we get saved, and God says, all right, now I want you to deal with some of this stuff. I want you to deal with your language. I want you to deal with your thought life. I want you to deal with your behavior, your actions, your attitudes, the things of the heart. Why? Because, see, now we're serving as ambassadors for Christ, and he doesn't want us to live a polluted life. Because what kind of a reflection is this on him? At the same time, living a godly life brings glory to him. It's honoring him. It is worshiping him. It is giving reverence to him. So when he says this here at the beginning of chapter 7, take this to heart. We all need to take this to heart. Since we have these promises, dear friends, Let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. Read on with me. Verse 2. Make room for us in your hearts, Paul says to the church at Corinth. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have exploited no one. I do not say this to condemn you. I have said before that you have such a place in our hearts that we would live or die with you. He says, I have great confidence in you. I take great pride in you. I am greatly encouraged in all our troubles. My joy knows no bounds. 
Now, he's not saying in general, in all my troubles, you know, I'm just one of the... Don't... Listen, even as Christians, when you're going through a troubling time, you don't have to put on a plastic face. I mean, you know, just be real enough... Just be real enough to go to a brother or sister in Christ and say, I'm going through something terrible. I don't really feel much of the joy of the Lord. Would you pray for me? He's not giving this false kind of plastic Christian experience here. He says, hey, I'm greatly encouraged in all the troubles. My joy knows no bounds. What he's saying here is in the context of when he goes through something difficult, you know what cheers him up so much? These people. He says, the people of the church of Corinth, he says, you all are a testimony of my ministry. And he says, when I think about you, my joy knows no bounds, even though I'm going through something terrible. And Paul endured his share of terrible stuff. But he's writing to them again. Remember the context. 1 Corinthians was a corrective epistle. 2 Corinthians, he's trying to let the church of Corinth know, don't listen to those naysayers who were, who were dissing me and letting you think that I'm not a real apostle from the Lord. He says, I, my credentials speak for themselves. You were the testimony and the fruit of my ministry. Don't believe it. So he's, he says, we've wronged no one. We've condemned no one. We've exploited no one. We have a clear conscience with all this. He says in verse 5, he says, for when we came into Macedonia, this body of ours had no rest. But we were harassed at every turn. Conflicts on the outside, meaning outside the church outside of Christianity, from unbelievers, fears within, talking about even the fear that he has within the church that some have rejected him and not accepted him. He says, but God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the, by the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me, your deep sorrow, your ardent concern for me, so that my joy was greater than ever. Now, this Titus, by the way, is the same Titus after whom one of the books of the Bible is named in the New Testament. He was sometimes a traveling companion of Paul's. And so Titus brings this message to Paul about the church of Corinth. And when Paul hears this encouragement from the church through Titus, then Paul is encouraged. That's why he says, so that my joy was greater than ever. In verse 8, he says, even if I caused you sorrow by my letter... I do not regret it, though I did regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. So he says to them, he goes, you know, I I didn't have any personal joy or I wasn't personally thrilled that I had to be really direct with you in my first letter. I mean, I don't really enjoy confrontation, Paul is saying here. So I was bothered by that. I didn't like that yet. I do see that you've responded to the truth. And so now I'm happy about it. I don't, I don't like confronting you. Nobody really should like that kind of thing. But he says, I see now that you have responded to it. You had a sorrow. But that sorrow led you to repentance. That's the word there in verse 9. Would you highlight that in your Bibles? He says, yet now I'm happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. He says, for you became sorrowful as God intended, and so were not harmed in any way by us. Verse 10, this is a great verse. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. 
Now, he uses the word repentance there twice in verse 9 and again in verse 10. It is a biblical word really outside of the Bible. Nobody typically is going to use this word in casual conversation, but it is an important biblical word. So here's a working definition for you. Repentance is a turning away from sin, disobedience, or rebellion, and a turning back to God. All right? It is a turning away from sin, disobedience, or rebellion, and turning back to God. That's what repentance, biblical repentance, is not just turning to God, it's turning away from something. It is saying, I renounce my ways, my former life, and I turn to God. I turn away from the old life, I turn to God. That's repentance. It's not just being sad or sorry about something. All right? And he distinguishes a godly sorrow from a worldly sorrow. He says a godly sorrow leaves no regret. Because when you're sorry in the right way before God, and then you turn to him and turn away from your sin, there's no regret because then you receive mercy and forgiveness, and so that brings joy in your life. Versus a worldly sorrow, which is just feeling bad but not doing much about it. You know the tragedy is? A lot of times, worldly sorrow is simply about feeling sad that you were caught. Godly sorrow is having remorse over what you've done, turning from it, and turning to God, he says, which leaves no regret. Verse 11, see what this godly sorrow has produced in you. Here's what he says to the Corinthian church. He says, because you had godly sorrow and then you repented, look what it has produced in you. What earnestness, what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, You ever been indignant with yourself? Like, I can't believe I did that. So that's a good thing that it can produce. What alarm? Uh, King James, New King James uh, says fear. What fear? It is the Greek word phobos, but it's not a phobia in that sense. But it is like having a, a real, you know, fear of the Lord and recognizing that what you've done, taking it seriously. He says what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. At every point, you have proved yourselves to be innocent in this matter. So even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did the wrong or of the injured party, but rather that before God, you could see for yourselves how devoted to us you are. By all this, we are encouraged. In addition to our own encouragement, we were especially delighted to see how happy Titus was because his spirit has been refreshed by all of you. I had boasted to him about you, and you have not embarrassed me. But just as everything we said to you was true, so our boasting about you to Titus has proved to be true as well. And his affection for you is all the greater when he remembers that you were all obedient, receiving him with fear and trembling. I am glad I can have complete confidence in you. So the tone of the letter changes here at this point, where he is more settled that having received news from Titus, that things are going better in the church of Corinth than what he at first had thought. And so he's relieved, he's encouraged, he's glad to hear about how they are maturing in the Lord. But now into chapters 8 and 9, he's going to stretch them in an area of spiritual discipline where they need to grow. And it is in the area of generosity. Some of your Bibles, like mine, might have a subtitle right here at chapter 8 saying, Generosity Encouraged. Uh, He is going to challenge them 
to grow among other ways that they are growing, grow in this area of generosity. Now, for those of you who like to take notes, between chapters 8 and 9, the word grace appears six times. Between chapters 8 and 9, the word grace appears six times, and the word generous, or some form of it, generosity, appears eight times. Between chapters 8 and 9. Living in unity with one another is never an easy task. Every member of the church is unique and filled with personality. And with that comes opinions. As you've learned from the Apostle Paul in the book of 2 Corinthians, though, unity within the body of Christ is a must. You don't have to agree on every tiny detail, but on the basic tenets of faith, members need to agree. Living in harmony does require humility and open communication and a willingness to follow the leadership God has placed over His church. We hope today's teaching on Cornerstone Connection has been encouraging to you. If you're in the area, we'd like to invite you to join us on Sunday at 8.30, 10, or 11.45 a.m. at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia for a time of worship and Bible study. You'll find more information at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Our website also houses our archive of Pastor Gary's teachings through the Bible, as well as additional resources to help you in your own study of the Word. You can even download our mobile app to take Cornerstone Connection with you on the go. You'll find all this again at cornerstoneconnection.cc. Thanks for joining us today. Pastor Gary has more to share from the book of 2 Corinthians, so we hope you'll join us again right here on Cornerstone Connection. They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know You're not a Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.